Good morning, all. Um, today's reading is taken from John 20, verses 19 to 29. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my fingers where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I know I've said this many times, but one of the privileges of being in ministry is uh, getting to see people become Christians for the first time, uh, and then not just become Christians, grow in their faith as well. It's been a privilege of mine these last 12 or so years, 12 and a half years, whatever it is now, across the, whatever the number is, seeing people, seeing many of you become Christians perhaps for the first time or recommit your life to Jesus if you've been a Christian but kind of been uh, on the back burner as it were. It's a great privilege to watch people um, encounter Jesus Christ, give their life to him and then it's the most wonderful privilege to have a vantage point uh, and some input hopefully to watch that person go from year zero, the first day of their new life and then watch them discover gifts they never knew they had, discover um, clarity and identity about who they really are, not what the world tries to tell them they are and the box the world often tries to shoehorn us into. And it is a real privilege. And our series of talks, just as we kind of leave Easter and get into the rest of our year, is titled Encountering the Risen Christ. Our world is always in such a hurry, isn't it, to get here and get there and rush from thing to thing. But I want us just to stay on the Easter story and the resurrection appearances of Jesus. He spent 40 days with his disciples and he met well over 500 of them in the flesh. It is a fact that Jesus rose from the dead. We want to stay here and enjoy these wonderful stories of people just like us encountering Jesus Christ for them in the flesh and how when they met him, they were changed. And the other reason for, as well is that as we emerge out of COVID, as it feels like we're increasingly doing so, which is wonderful, um, many people are carrying baggage like those disciples had baggage from Good Friday, baggage of grief and doubt and worry and anxiety and feel all those things they took with them into Easter Sunday and then they encountered Jesus. And so for us, as we emerge out of COVID, not only do we need freedom back, 
I believe many of us will need a fresh encounter of Jesus Christ again as we get back on to serving him and moving the way he calls us to. So today we're looking at those verses that Tom read to us. Actually, I've, I've had two, added two more, sorry, I should have told you that. So uh, John 20, verses 19 to 31. If you've got a Bible, please open it. If you're at home, uh, why not quickly grab, uh, you can press pause. You've got the luxury of pressing pause. Um, I'm going to grab a Bible and have it open, and we're going to come to those verses in a moment. But we're looking at uh, the disciples locked away in a room, and then the story of Thomas. And I want to just think about this word doubt about what it is to doubt as well, and the power that doubt can have in our lives. This is Easter Sunday, where this story takes place. Um, They're hiding away, they're fearful of the Jews, understandably so. They've just watched them crucify their Savior a couple of days ago, and here they are thinking, well, if it happened to him, it's probably going to happen to us. They're terrified, they're locked away. But they begin to hear these reports from the women, first of all, from Mary. Peter has a strange experience of finding an empty tomb. And then they have the two men that came back from the road to Damascus. All of this is happening, but they're locked away. They're locked away in that room because they're frightened of what the future will hold. We're often a bit horrible about poor old Thomas, doubting Thomas. Uh, we look at him, you know, the one that fell to his knees later and said, my Lord or my God, but he said famously, I won't believe it until I see his, the hands, uh, the nail, nail marks in his hands and feet and side and put my finger in the holes and my hand in his side. But actually, all of them were doubting, not just Thomas. All of Jesus' followers were in doubt and fear. So uh, thinking about doubt for a few minutes, doubt is a common experience, a common emotion that all of us have from time to time. And if you're a Christian or if you're on the verge of becoming a Christian, you will no doubt have doubt. Uh, You will have lots of things that you doubt about. You think, well, is it really true? Is God really there? How can I be 100% sure? And doubt can be quite a debilitating emotion, can't it? I read this quote this week. Give me the benefit of your convictions, if you have any. But keep your doubts to yourself, for I have enough of my own. Doubt can destroy anything. It can destroy your faith if you let it seed down and grow into a terrible thorn. Doubt can destroy relationships if you doubt the integrity of your partner, even for a little bit, and you let that dig deep down. You will never trust them ever again. It can destroy businesses. It can destroy churches. Doubt is a terrible thing, and we must be careful with it. The best talk I ever heard on doubt uh, was one line, in fact, by a guy named William Lane Craig, and I would have said this before. But he said, every year, you should take one thing that you doubt in your faith and deal with it. (laughs) So it might be, why do good things happen to bad people? That may be one thing that you doubt. Deal with it. Get an answer. Work it through. You may ask, how can God exist eternally? How can someone uh, who has have, have no beginning and no end, how can that possibly be a thing? Work it out. There's not a single question that's been asked of Christianity in 2,000 years that has undermined it uh, to the point where you should no longer believe it. Take one doubt every year and deal with it properly. Um, you probably can go and sit. There's probably space in the hall. Sorry. <laughs> um, So doubt is quite a dangerous thing, and there are three effects of doubt that we see in these verses. John chapter 20, verse 19 to 31. Um, So the first one is fear. Uh, Verse 19, we read, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. The first thing we see about doubt is doubt always leads to fear. When we doubt something, we fear the outcome. I doubt that an aeroplane will keep me safe, and so therefore I'm terrified when I get on each and every one of them. 
They're back together. The door is locked, you note. And they're scared. Fear and doubt were often spoken of in the same sentence. But that state of fear these disciples are in has completely paralyzed their faith. It's made it go stale within the space of a weekend. And they're no longer fulfilling Jesus' call on their lives. They're static, they're hiding, and they're the shell of the men that they were just a week before. How many times in our own lives have we had a great plan in our mind and we think, this is what I'm going to do, this is going to be fantastic, it's going to be awesome, I love it. That little seed of doubt comes in, or one person says one thing, and you think, oh, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it. Or you feel God call you to something, God's got put that call on your life and it burns your heart, but then the devil whispers, really? You? You're not the sort of person that goes into ministry or, or becomes a missionary or does something different. You're not the sort of person that starts a prayer group at, church, at your workplace. You're not the sort of person that can get away with telling others about Jesus. And so you drop it and you don't do it. How many times in our own lives has fear completely destroyed our plans and what we feel God was calling us to do? How many churches have felt God call them to great works and then only for doubt to ruin it? Not to go on about a building project every Sunday, but we're doing a building project. We are going to redevelop this church. It is going to be wonderful, and the devil will have no part of it. He will want us not to do it. Why? Because a growing church that's got modern facilities means something. It doesn't just mean that we can be more comfortable on a Sunday morning. It means we can be more outgoing with our faith all through the week, and the devil won't want it. And he will whisper, it's too expensive. It's too much for you lot. You're not the kind of Christians that can manage this. Why not? Every other church in the world manages it. Why shouldn't SECC be exactly the same? I wonder what doubt is leading you to fear this morning. What are you frightened of this morning? What are you doubtful about your future? Maybe it's going back to what you did before COVID. Are you frightened of that? Are you doubting whether it's going to work? It's time to conquer it. Otherwise, you will become static and stale in your faith and your life and your decision-making. That's the first thing that happens with these disciples. They're stale. Second thing is, uh, doubt leads to a continued disbelief. I find uh, verse 11 quite interesting. The women come back from the tomb, and they say, we've seen the Lord. They've told them that. These two men have actually come back. They're actually in the room with the disciples when Jesus appears, saying we had communion with him just a few moments ago, and yet the door is still locked. Those three reports, including Peter's unusual experience of the empty tomb, should have meant that bolt or bolts would have been, should have been destroyed. They should have gone flooded back out onto the streets like they will do at Pentecost, but the door is still locked. They've had two first-hand, first-hand accounts from people they trust that Jesus has conquered death, but yet the door is still locked. Their doubt has led them to continued disbelief. Doubt leads to inertia of thoughts and a refusal to believe. I wonder how many people, even watching this perhaps, who are still yet to give their lives to Jesus Christ. Maybe you've done Alpha. Maybe you've heard of answers to prayer, miracles, amazing things. Maybe your heart's burned when you've come to church, but that doubt still lingers, and so you continue in your disbelief. Why? What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? The third thing that happens is that doubt leads to an academic position. And it's time to bring in poor old Thomas, who's often kind of the villain of this particular passage. But you notice his reaction to the reports of Jesus being alive. Of course, now he's got all of his friends saying the same thing as the women and the two men that went off the road to Emmaus. 
But Peter's response is slightly different to the rest of the disciples. What does he say? Well, he says in verse 24 to 25, it says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. He said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. You note that his doubt morphed into a kind of a, a pseudo-logical position. Because if he's risen, I should be able to see and touch, and that's ultimate proof. And until I have ultimate proof, I won't believe it. And this is the kind of thing that Christians hear all the time. Well, if God to, appears to me, then I'll believe it. Then I'll be a Christian. If I see Jesus, then I'll do it. It becomes a pseudo-logical position. If I, the resurrection is proved the way I think it should be, then I'll believe it. And it sounds reasonable in a world where resurrections don't happen. But Thomas lives in a world where resurrection is now a fact. And so what he says is logically incoherent. He can not get away with saying, unless I see, I'll believe. Because resurrection is a fact. And you don't have to see it to believe it. It seems to me that many people in in our academic institutions end up with intellectual objections to faith in Jesus Christ that seem so reasonable on the outside. Yet when you dig deep, they're unreasonable and incoherent in a world where there are miracles and resurrections take place. And often these academic objections, actually, when you dig down, are based on doubt and fear and maybe even hurt. Someone like Richard Dawkins, if you were to dig down deep enough, you would discover a man that has a presupposition that God simply cannot exist and it's illogical. But it isn't illogical that God doesn't exist. It's logical that he does exist. It's harder to disprove the existence of God than to prove the non-existence of God. What did I just say? Does that make sense? Hang on. I've become logically incoherent. But often, if you let your doubt fester, you end up building around it what seems like a logical kind of barrier to why you can keep your doubt and your doubt can keep you. And you see it all the time. So this doubt that is enveloping these disciples, what's the solution? The solution for them is to meet the risen Jesus Christ. Verse 20, then 27 and 28, we read these verses. After he had said this, Jesus is now in the room. He showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And then verses 27 to 28, Thomas said, Then said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said, My Lord and my God. When they encounter the risen Lord Jesus, two wonderful things happen. Their doubts are transformed to joy, and their doubt leads to worship. Transformation in these disciples happens after they encounter the risen Christ, and it's nothing short of phenomenal. These, these kind of half-men in this room, locked in this room, almost all of them will be killed for their faith. In just a short time, one will be boiled in oil, one will be crucified upside down, one will be dragged along the street, others will be chopped up, all sorts of horrendous things will happen to them. And they will meet their deaths with boldness and passion. Why? Not because they've believed an idea or a philosophical position or someone's answered all their questions. No, because they've encountered the risen Lord Jesus. Doubt disappears and is replaced in an instant with a death-defying boldness. 
But more than that, Jesus doesn't just appear to them in this room to make them feel better, which is often what we secretly want. Lord, make me feel better about my doubts. No. Christ goes there to commission them for mission. What we have in these verses, verses 21 to 22, is John's version almost of the Great Commission. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive my spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit, sorry. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. There's a whole other sermon around the Greek of verse 23, but essentially what he's saying there is as you go out and preach the gospel and people believe in Christ and ask forgiveness for their sin, then they can be forgiven. If you don't preach the gospel, then they won't know the forgiveness of God. He doesn't just come to make them feel better. He comes to commission them for a spirit-filled, passionate mission that will, in a few short years, change the entire world. Can you imagine how, if you were in that room, you would never say this group of men would do anything other than drift away, fade away to nothing. And yet, not even the Roman Empire will be safe from the advancement of Christianity. And within a few hundred years, a very famous Roman um, leader would become a Christian and the world would never be the same again. So what about us? It's great, isn't it? Isn't it good for them? It's good for them. There they are. They've met the encountered Jesus in the flesh, and they're never the same again. And know that you're probably sitting there thinking, well, I have doubts. I have doubts all the time. I'd love to be like them. Lord, if I could just see one of the marks in one of your hands or, or the top of your scar on your side, then I'd feel better. If I could just see Jesus in the distance one day, that would answer all of my doubts. Isn't that what we all think? Don't we all secretly think that they're better off than we are? They got to meet Jesus in the flesh. Surely they would never doubt again. But we are doomed to doubt our faith, surely, because we are so far after the event. We never get, will get to see Jesus in the flesh. If we had even one of those experiences, we probably all secretly think we would never doubt him again. Let me read you a poem that I found uh, this week. I think it's a poem. If it's not, I'll try and do it poetically. It expresses that idea that they want to see and experience something of God that's found in the pages of the Bible. It says, let me meet you on the mountain, Lord, just once. You wouldn't have to burn a whole bush, just a few smoking branches, and I would surely be your Moses. Lord, let me meet you on the water, Lord, just once. It wouldn't have to be on White Rock Lake, just a puddle after the annual Dallas rain. This is American, by the way. Um, and I would surely be your Peter. Lord, let me meet you on the road, Lord, just once. You wouldn't have to blind me on the M25. We'll put that. Just a few bright lights on the way to church. And I would surely be your Paul. Lord, let me meet you, Lord, just once, anywhere, anytime. Just meeting you in the word is so hard sometimes. Must I always be your Thomas? But yeah, Jesus says in verse 29 what I think is probably one of the most amazing things he said in his entire time on earth. He said, because you have seen me, the disciples, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have not yet believed. That's the most incredible, astonishing thing for Jesus to say. He says to these disciples, you are worse off than everyone else who is yet to believe in me across all of human history. They are better in a better position than you are in this room, seeing the holes in my hands and my feet and the gash in my side. 
Can you imagine how that must have gone down with them? They must have thought, really? I thought we would be the lucky ones. But Jesus says, everybody that comes after them is more blessed when they believe. And then John speaks to us. John, the writer of this gospel, in the two verses that I forgot to put on for the reading, says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John then addresses every single one of us, us even in this room, that actually all we need for salvation and everlasting life and an end to doubt are the words written in his gospel on the whole of God's word. This book is the most trustworthy book in all of human history. If you were to set it aside next to any other book that's ever been written by any man, woman, or child, they would be inferior to the reliability of the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. Anyone who tells you different is lying. It's pseudo-logic. That's illogical. If you do the, uh, the scientific work on um, reliable works, reliable literature, actually, this is the most reliable book you will ever read in all of your life, past, present, or future. And within it, are the very words of life because it contains the story of Christ Almighty, God's Son who lived and died, took our sin, died and rose on the third day. Everything written here is enough for life in this world and life in the world to come. And so maybe this morning you've been questioning, where is God? Where is God? Maybe you've got a locked door of fear because of your doubts. Maybe it's time to open that because maybe God is a lot closer to you than you realize. Maybe it's time to invite Jesus in. Lord, I'm going back or this is happening. Jesus, please be with me. Maybe you're wondering what your purpose is. Maybe you're wondering what the point of the whole thing is. Maybe you need to hear that commission again to do the mission of God. You're built not for your mission or your purpose as you see it, but for the mission and purposes of God. True happiness is not found when you do what you want. It's when you submit and do what he wants. Or maybe you're just struggling to believe anything anyone's saying to you about God and faith. Maybe it's time to be reasonable and accept what others say and accept Christ and take a risk and take a bold step forward. I want to pray. We've only got a couple of minutes left. But can I invite you just to shut your eyes just for a moment? I'm just going to speak, but just keep your eyes shut. As we have our eyes shut, just think of God. Think of Jesus. Even if you're not sure what you believe, just be open-hearted, be prepared. Because that phrase he said, peace be with you, we've not dwelt on, but that's such a wonderful greeting. And I believe Jesus wants to greet you with that this morning. Peace be with you. I know some of you watching at home or some of you in this room will be feeling anxious about the future, unsure of what it's really all about. Maybe life has rushed past and you're wondering where it all went. Or maybe you're fearful of the future. Maybe you're full of doubts about yourself or about the choices you've made, about your family, your friends, or whatever it may be. Just open that door. Don't let fear lock God out. Don't let doubt lock God out. Let him in. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. Lord Jesus, I love you. Lord Jesus, I want to follow you. Lord Jesus, I want to encounter you. This morning, I believe he wants you to be, encounter his presence. Just in a moment or two, it's quiet. Just focus on the King of Kings and ask him into your life again.
Let's finish with a prayer. Our Father, Lord, you are the one in heaven. You are the God of all. Father, you knew us before the creation of the world, for even an atom or an element, Lord, even came into being. You knew our names. Lord, you'd already knew that you were going to send your most precious gift, your son, to die for us on the cross. Lord God, we live in a world full of doubts. Lord, we live in a world now where truth is relative and truth is sometimes even hated. Lord, people long to know who they are. And Lord, even when they get it wrong, they defend that position with ferocity, Lord. And we pray that we would be people that would know the real truth, the whole truth, the love of God. Lord, for any here who are full of doubts, doubts about where you were, where you are, where you will be. Lord, may they just reach out in this moment and open that door and invite you in. We pray for this week, Lord, for all who have got difficult moments ahead. We pray your blessing on them. May they know your peace that you gave to your disciples in that room. And I thank you, Lord, that we are in a better position all these years later. Our faith can be stronger than even those who have seen you face to face. Lord, fill us with your spirit, we pray. And Lord, we lift up this whole service to you now. We thank you for our time together. We ask for your blessing on our family service, our tea and coffee outside as well. And we pray you'll be at the heart of all of it. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Have a good week.